recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey folks, Starving for Darkness is coming in hot in one second. Jane's ready to go, I know that, and you guys are ready to listen, but... Before we do, we got to talk about Evluma, the people that sponsor this show, the magicians, EVLUMA.com, hover over products, click Dark Sky Friendly, and hit up that Omnimax, Greg. And why you do that is because the Omnimax can fit in just about every existing outdoor fixture that's out there. It's a retrofit uh, bulb itself, and it has a Kelvin temperatures from 2K up to 5K, medium and multiple base, 20KV to 10K surge protection has a photo control fail safe, which if your photo cell goes out, this bulb, we'll call it, learns it over time, and then it will mimic whatever that photo cell did. So it knows what it needs to do without the expense of having to go and replace the photo cell. And all of it's in a compact size, so it's going to fit in your existing fixture. Go to evluma.com, hover over dark products, hover over products, click on dark sky friendly lighting. God, they're so They're doing it so right. Check them out, evlumen.com. Now, here comes Starving for Darkness. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm here, and I'm thrilled to have our next guest, Dr. Mika Brodsky. Dr. Brodsky is a wildlife veterinarian and pioneer in the fields of marine mammal and sea turtle research and medicine and holds a doctorate in veterinary medicine from UPenn. He is the Director of Conservation Medicine and Director of Development at Hawaii Marine Animal Response. I'll call that HMAR throughout the episode, and brings more than 15 years of experience in wildlife medicine to his role as as HMAR's veterinarian. Mika, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm particularly excited because I think by now our listeners know I absolutely love wildlife. So I really can't wait to dig into your expertise. And we start every episode with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Uh, Thank you very much for the introduction and for the invitation having me on, Jane. Um, I would be happy. I would be happy to tell you about a, uh, an experience, a dark sky experience that left me with a sense of awe. And uh, I think my first really profound dark sky experience was in the summer after my freshman year of college, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, about three months living in a tent in, on the rural coast of Newfoundland. Now, for a kid who grew up in Philadelphia and had really (laughs) never spent any time outside of an urbanized landscape, uh, being in this incredibly remote area with functionally zero light pollution was uh, mind boggling. I spent Mm -hmm. many nights just laying on my back, looking up at the stars and at the sky and marveling at this incredibly bright, vivid, uh, colorful sky. And the other thing that really struck me about that uh, was how incredibly cold it could get on a summer night in Newfoundland with the <laughs> wind coming off of coming off the bay. Um, but, but there was something that's really stuck with me during that time, which was how good the nighttime visibility was for all but maybe three or four, um, three or four nights of the month. And so we basically had no need for and didn't use uh, artificial lighting at night in, for most of, the, most of the month when we were living out there. And um, that has really stayed with me. And I now... Uh, I have since relocated to much warmer climates. I live in Hawaii now. Um, and we still, like today in our, in our home, we have no lighting on at night. 
So all the exterior lights are out, the interior lights we burn, you know, we, we shut off lights we're not using um, primarily to try and maintain that, that darkness. Now I'm very fortunate to live in kind of a rural area in Hawaii as well on Oahu, which is the most densely populated island. And we live on a street that has no street lights and you can still see, we still have fairly good visibility for the night sky by comparison to where we lived prior to this, which was on the town side of the island, which is much intensely dead. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, were you referring to those darker nights as the new moon nights when you couldn't see? Yes, that would be uh, primarily that would occur around new moons or nights when there was a lot of uh, when there was a lot of cloud cover. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting also, um, you know, I we've all grown up with devices and that there you were separated from uh, all of these screens, um, even probably back then, and you were just completely magnetically attracted to the screen of the sky. And I've often said the sky was our first screen and that it's anything but boring. You don't feel detached at all. In fact, it feels like a moment of connection. So I find it interesting the way you described just almost being addicted to going out and, and looking at those stars. Well, it, you know, for me, it was something novel and you're right. We do all grow up, um, uh, kind of with access to screens. And while I certainly watched television as a, as a kid, um, I'm old enough that, that this was, this was uh, a decade and a half, before, I think, before I saw my first cell phone. Um, so it was, it was, in some ways, it was a major shift. In other ways, the only screen in my life up until that point had been either one of those green screens you see with a Commodore 64 <laughs> or, uh, or a television. Yeah. And I also have a practice where I really keep the lights out at night. And I find that it's almost an addiction because, uh, and I, I hope for everyone else that it becomes an addiction too, that when you allow darkness to set in your space and you kind of allow that connection to the darkness that's happening outside, that if you turn a light on, you can't see or feel. Uh, so it's that, but it becomes a habit and a practice. So it's nice to see how those moments that you had in uh, Newfoundland actually created almost a lifelong practice, it sounds. Oh, it absolutely did create a lifelong practice. I have, um, since since that time, I have, although I have great neighbors now, uh, historically have lived in a number of places where I had neighbors that had extremely bright lights, or I lived in urban areas with uh, high high light pollution and I really found that I had a lot more difficulty sleeping without, uh, if I didn't have blackout shades, that, that kind of pervasive all night bright light, especially turning on and off and on and off. I find it to be very disruptive and I sleep a lot better when I don't have that kind of input. Yeah, I, I was actually, um, I had to go on a long drive this weekend and um, I realized for the first time, and I haven't said this to anyone, so here you are, um, that light pollution is a terrible term because if you talk about air pollution, water pollution, well, light pollution is referring back onto itself. So what we're actually talking about is sleep pollution, star pollution. That's the better term to really describe what's being polluted, not light. Light's the polluter. So it's kind of a weird term that actually we've discussed on the show doesn't even work. It doesn't work for people advocating for against light pollution and also for people that are scared of the dark. It's also offensive. So there's a lot of problems with that term. Um, and you're right, sleep is one of the main things that is affecting humans, but we're here to talk about wildlife today. And so Absolutely. you are the, the director of conservation medicine and director of development at H-M-A-R. Is that how you guys say it? H-M-A-R, H-M-A-R? H, I, I usually refer to it as H-M-A-R. H-M-A-R. Okay. So um, that's easier to say for me as well. And so Great. can you talk about your role and the mission of this, this organization? Sure. So uh, the mission of H-M-A-R is to undertake uh, significant action that 
preserves and helps recover the protected marine species in and around Hawaii, the, the marine ecosystem in Hawaii and the ecosystem that humans and animals share. And so uh, my role with the organization is um, obviously I, I wear a few different hats. So uh, I, I work closely with the president and founder of the organization to maintain all of our permits and regulatory compliance. I work closely with all members of the staff to help train and train people's animal skills, their um, what kind of our protocols for how we approach and assess animals and uh, help to make sure that we're, as you and I were talking a little bit about nomenclature earlier, that we are um, using good nomenclature when we're collecting mm -hmm. data and that we're working closely with our partners at NOAA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and other regulatory partners and sponsors to, to make sure that we're gathering uh, really good quality information that can be used to more effectively help support the recovery and uh, protection of the the protected marine species that we work with. Mm -hmm. According to your website, it says Hawaii makes up less than 0.2% of U.S. land, but over 25% of species found on the nation's endangered species list are endemic to Hawaii earning it a rather That's... unflattering title of the most the most the endangered species capital of the world. Um, can you talk about why there are so many endangered species in a remote part of the world? Sure. Um, so the vast majority of those species that are being referred to there are actually um, plant species. So there's there's wow. uh, some 300 plant species in the state of Hawaii that are listed on the endangered species list. Now, part of this is that um, when we talk about a species being threatened or endangered, here in the United States, what we're really speaking about or discussing is that those animals are listed on the Endangered Species Act, under the Endangered Species Act, which is administered mm -hmm. uh, primarily by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, there are some joint activities that go on between U.S. Fish and Wildlife and other agent, government agencies such as NOAA Fisheries, but for the most part, it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife listing and maintaining that list of threatened or endangered species under the Endangered Species Act. And that can include both plants and animals. And it also helps to provide that, that legislative infrastructure, that legal infrastructure, helps also helps to provide support for protecting the, the habitat that is critically important for those protected species. And so when we talk about the protected species that we here at HMAR work directly with, what we're really talking about is Hawaiian monk seals. Uh, dolphins and whales, which mm -hmm. we fortunately here on Oahu, we have, um, there, there are not a lot of strandings. Dolphin and whale strandings do happen occasionally, but, but if we, in comparison to many of the other places in the U.S. and around the world, we have very few dolphin mm -hmm. and whale strandings here in Hawaii. Um, and then uh, sea turtles and seabirds. And uh, while some of the seabirds are listed under the Endangered Species Act, uh, a number of the seabirds that we work with are actually not protected under the ESA. They're protected under the Migratory Birds, the Migratory Bird Species Act, uh, Migratory Bird and be Treaty Act, Migratory Bird mm -hmm. Treaty Act. Mm -hmm. um, which it, which basically is an international agreement between uh, many countries to protect highly migratory birds so that they can be protected across um, uh, across international boundaries. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what you're I would venture to say that the 300 plants that are endangered are as a result of human uh, activity. Would you agree that that's true? So directly and indirectly, yes. Mm -hmm. So the, the picture with, with plants, and, and this is somewhat complicated, and also we're getting a little bit outside of my area of expertise. Okay. I okay. know a little, 
I know a little bit about this because my wife works in this arena as well and is much more active in the um, in kind of the terrestrial ecosystem management side of things. Uh, but so we have a lot of invasive species. There's loss of habitat. There's uh, due to a wide variety of human activities. And invasive species are one of the biggest issues challenging and biggest challenges facing the state of Hawaii today from a land and wildlife management perspective um, and from a species management perspective. So you have uh, invasive ungulates like pigs and goats and sheep that, um, that are, they, they disrupt the normal forest environment through activities like rooting and eating the native plants. And so you asked earlier in asking this question, you said, well, how does a place that is this remote have yes. so many endangered species? So one of the interesting things about the Hawaiian Islands is they involved, they evolved without any major predators. So there were only two mammals in the entire, originally, historically, there were only two mammals found in the entire Hawaiian island chain, and that was the bat and the Hawaiian monk seal, which just comes yes. up on land to give birth and to, to rest and bask in the sun and thermoregulate. So there were no... There were no cats or dogs or pigs or goats or anything in this environment until um, until people arrived here around 13, 1300 years ago. And when um, Polynesian voyagers first arrived here, which we think was around twelve or 1300 years ago, they brought a few animals with them. And then when um, in colonial times, when uh, Westerners started arriving here, then they brought a whole new host of invasive species with them. And some of these species have been released on purpose in mm. misguided attempts to manage other invasive species. Um, oh, Lord. And so yes. all of these things disrupt the normal cycling. And so the animals, this is a huge challenge for, for example, for the birds that we work with. Many, many of those seabirds are ground nesting birds, nest in burrows. They did not evolve with predators like cats and, um, and the mongoose that are here. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so they really don't, they don't have, they did not develop reproductive mechanisms that would allow them to survive as a species long-term in a place with those kinds of predators with that kind of predation and, and pressure. And so the same thing is happening with plants where you've got all kinds of invasive plants. You've got animals disrupting the normal, normal cycling in the, in the forest. You've got uh, plants that grow much more quickly and more aggressively and outcompete the native plants. And so this this is a there's a cascade effect. And it's interesting. I, I actually wrote out a little idea. I wanted to work the cascade effect into this conversation um, mm. and kind of how an, a, an impact on a single species can impact many other species and and really change the the way an ecosystem functions and have great sh cause great shifts in ecosystem services and functioning but this was not how i had planned to do that at all <laughs> well that's okay um I, I i talk about cascading a lot what i what i often say is that we have no idea how the changes in uh the light levels on the planet will cascade through our ecosystem i think it's so interesting that you had this beautiful little island that was untouched with an ecosystem that developed on its own and then as you're saying these invasive species come in and completely disrupt the balance and what an, a beautiful example it is to explain that if you take one species and you pull it out or you interject it how much this can change the balance of the entire ecosystem. So it's kind of a sad, tough lesson to learn, um, but it's certainly a valuable one to the rest of the world. So that's that's really interesting. And I was on your website learning that um, monk seals, there's only 1,200 monk seals left uh, that we know of. On, in... 
I think we're around uh, up to about 1,400 now. Oh, that's good. Um, so it's gone up total, since that video. Yeah. Throughout the main, throughout all of the Hawaiian islands. So that's the main Hawaiian islands and also the northwestern Hawaiian islands. The northwestern Hawaiian islands are very, a very small set of islands. They have uh, no permanent habit, human habitation, and they are home to a wide variety of the, um, of the, the marine-based wildlife. That's where most of the albatross nest. It's where 90% of the, the green sea turtles in the state nest. Mm -hmm. It is historic um, <clears throat> where monk seals, the monk seal population was highest. Um, although prior to humans showing up, there's fairly good evidence that there were, that the monk seals were um, kind of distributed throughout all of the Hawaiian islands, including the main Hawaiian islands. And when I say main Hawaiian islands, I'm really talking about um, the, the Hawaiian islands that people think of when they come to visit. And you're talking about Oahu, Maui, Molokai, Lanai, and the other, the big island of Hawaii. And uh, these are the inhabited Maui. The, these are the inhabited islands, and they're the largest islands. The northwestern Hawaiian islands are critically important for a bunch of the wildlife that exists here. And so when we talk about, um, well, this is not the case for sea turtles, when we talk about um, uh, species like the Hawaiian monk seal, the term we use for that is an endemic species. And so the only place in the world where Hawaiian monk seals exist is right here in Hawaii. So this mm -hmm. is the other reason that we have so many endangered species. We have a huge number of endemic species, birds, wow. uh, especially birds and plants. And so wow. they don't exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, you know, I said earlier that about 200, about 300 of the, the, species on that endangered species list are plants here in the Hawaiian islands. Uh, about 200 of those, in approximately 200 of those species, there are fewer than 50 examples of that plant left in the wild that we know of. Um, so sad and so scary. Well, let me ask the million dollar question, which is on yeah. this podcast called Starving for Darkness. How are you yeah. seeing the impact of light pollution on this precious ecosystem, which has so many endemic species and uh, also in, in general endangered species on the planet? All right. So um, I think let me start by talking about what we really see and and kind of what our purview as an organization is. And, uh, you know, we work primarily with marine mammals and sea turtles and seabirds. And I think the the most kind of most well-known classic example of the impacts of our artificial lighting on wildlife are sea turtles. Everybody yes. has seen these um, the nature specials where you've got baby sea turtles emerging from the nest and instead of going towards the water, they are, they are wandering up on land. They're getting hit by roads. They're spending lots of time on land where they're, they are predated upon by things like birds and crabs. They're going into parking lots. They're getting stuck in places and, and dying from exposure to the sun when they get dried out, they're not making it to the ocean in the first place. And that happens tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of times each year worldwide. Um, you know, the, the baby sea turtles are guided to the ocean. They hatch at night and they are guided to the ocean by the reflection of uh, star of starlight and moonlight off the ocean surface once they reach the once they reach the ocean they undergo this prolonged period of swimming it lasts about 24 hours where they basically use up all of the stored energy in their little bodies that came from the yolk mm. in that egg and they swim out and they disappear into the open ocean for a number of years and these are referred to as the lost years and then they they uh, depending on the species, they either go out and, and roam the oceans or they, in, with the, in the case of green turtles, here, especially here in Hawaii, but elsewhere also, um, 
green turtles come back and they forage in the nearshore waters and they live in the nearshore waters when they're juveniles and into into early adulthood and so we actually see those animals come back and <clears throat> and so when they uh the starlight they they nest at night sea turtles nest at night they'll nest multiple mm -hmm. times in a season and they are guided after nesting they get, they're guided back into the ocean by the reflection of that moonlight on off the mm -hmm. water's surface and so not only do baby turtles get disoriented by artificial lighting adult females who've come up to land to nest will uh sometimes also get get impacted and loss of baby sea turtles is tragic the loss of an adult who has who has made survived. it through survived made it through and survived the yeah. the 15 20 30 years it might take to reach maturity and reproduct and become reproductive has a right. way bigger impact on the on the species so they're they're really suffering from both ends and wow. those animals will also wander up after they'll come up on land they'll nest and then they'll get disoriented and attracted to to bright artificial lights and they may wander up into roads where they can be hit by car they'll wander they'll get lost or stuck and they can die from being exposed out in the sun the following over the course of a few more days they may be predated upon by people mm -hmm. or other animals um so it's heartbreaking these are it's heartbreaking and it you know one of the things i am very focused on although i am a veterinarian and i do really genuinely care about individual animal health and welfare um, at this point in my career i am kind of weighing how effective i am and what kind of legacy i want to leave as a professional and um, I'm focusing my energies, personally focusing my energies on, um, in addition to trying to address those individual animal needs on population level questions mm -hmm. and answers and trying to provide um, information and support that will allow lawmakers and conservationists and uh and natural resource managers to make really good informed decisions about how to best protect these species so that the populations can recover and they can continue to play their their role in these ecosystems. Yes. I I you know I'll admit this that I've often used sea turtles um, in a way, in, when I'm doing grassroots education to really explain light pollution from the start, um, that I, I actually say I will not be discussing sea turtles. Um, and it's not to say that they don't deserve the time. And I really actually want to dig in to, to what you're doing uh, on sea turtles because uh, I do care about sea turtles. My issue has been that humans only talk about sea turtles with regard to light pollution. In fact, that's the only species that's discussed. And that is mind boggling to me because actually every spe species has evolved to the natural daylight cycle. So to say that only sea turtles are the species we're going to focus on doesn't make any sense to me, especially when we think of words like cascading changes throughout, throughout ecosystems. But what are you um, and what is the work that's being done in the Hawaiian islands to bring the light levels down and try and make a more hospitable environment for baby sea turtles. And now I did just learn that. Uh, I didn't even think of adult sea turtles being disoriented. That's horrible to hear. Well, you know, so um, if I'd like, I will, I will definitely answer that question. There, I would like <laughs> to provide some examples that other than sea turtles and talk about Great. other species. Yes. If yeah, we can do absolutely. that in the course of answering this question. I'm so, all about it. <laughs> um, one of, and, and again, I'm, I'm talking about the species that we actively work with that make up the majority of our activities on a daily basis. And so um, these are kind of dramatic examples. They're examples of things that are really easy to see with the, that a human being can look at and go, oh, look, there's a, there's a problem. Um, so the other thing that is a huge issue here in the Hawaiian Islands is a phenomenon called fallout. 
with which is something we see with birds and so um seabirds come the only time they come to land as they come to to land when i say land i don't mean land from flying i mean return to the terrestrial environment uh, most mm -hmm. seabirds will spend mm -hmm. their entire lives at sea they never come back to land for anything other than to uh to reproduce anything other than breeding breeding and raising chicks is the only thing they come back to the land for once they reach adulthood and then these birds um spend some some they hatch they spend uh some short amount of time here and once they have their full feather and the ability to fly they they the term for that is fledging they leave the mm -hmm. nest they can fly and they head out to the open ocean guided by by moonlight and starlight reflection off of the off of the sea surface they follow that light reflection out to the feeding grounds and they don't return to to land for years until they become sexually mature and come back to reproduce so uh one of the things that we see every year is a phenomenon called called fallout and it is most it most commonly occurs uh, with a variety of different um, of different seabirds, but this also occurs with migrating birds of all species. What we see is um, here in the Hawaiian Islands. What we at HMAR see mostly is uh, fallout associated with the fledging of wedgetail shearwaters here on Oahu, and so um, what happens is you have these baby birds that come out of the nest, they fledge. And uh, I'd like to point out, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, about seabirds who've evolved with no predators. These wedge-tailed shearwaters actually nest in burrows on the, in sandy soil. And so they nest on the ground. They come out of their, come out of their nests as uh, young birds ready to, ready to fledge, ready to fly away. They fly away and instead of making it to the ocean, they get attracted to lights and they fly around and around the light until they either become completely exhausted and can no longer fly and they become grounded or they may collide with something like uh, utility lines or buildings, windows, uh, uh, any kind of tower or um, or like a light post, and then they end up on the ground, either injured or just completely exhausted and unable to fly. So that's that phenomenon is called fallout. Um, in 2020, uh, we rescued 209 live uh, wedgetail shearwaters. Uh, and about 90% of those animals that fall out occur, 90% of those rescues occurred in excess of 90% occurred during uh, quarter four. So basically between like mid to late October and mid December, mm. right this around that fledging year. season. This time of year, so, we're heading right back into fallout season again. And so fallout so is sort of like falling out of migratory habits, would you say? Is that the they fall of the out term? of the sky. I, oh, I think it really that's... is just identifying that they're on. The, they they've been grounded. They've fallen out of the sky. Mm. Mm -hmm. And and so um, yeah, this is a huge problem. With th this is one of multiple threats facing these yeah. these species that that didn't evolve in a place where there were cats or dogs or other predators or people. Um, they've lost huge, vast, vast amounts of habitat to, um, to develop coastal development and human activities on and around the, the shorelines. And mm -hmm. um, this is just one more one more thing. So th there, there was a really interesting study done here. Uh, the the paper was just published um, twenty twenty, uh, but, but a, a graduate student. This was a graduate student project from the University of Hawaii, and uh, this student reviewed eight years of research, eight years of data collected on wedge tail shearwaters during fallout season, 
94% of those birds that were identified were um, during fall, and this included both live and dead birds. 94% um, of those birds were recovered within 25 feet of an artificial light source. Mm. Wow, that's an incredible statistic. Wow. 40% of that, in, of all of the animals that fell out during uh during those seasons, if they they looked at all eight seasons and kind of a, and averaged them, approximately forty percent of that fallout occurred over a three day period surrounding the new moon, oh when the, the night sky is darkest. Yeah, when it, when a light could be as glary and blinding um, because of the contrast. So that's so interesting. And that is definitely a fact that lighting uh, industry folk would geek out on uh, because it's we're all about developing light levels that are about uh, visibility, as well as um, the idea that contrast can serve you, but glare is not is, is it something to avoid. So these are all things that we talk about as we design. And it's so interesting that if the backdrop of the night is with a new moon that that would cause more glare and more issues for wildlife. That's fascinating. Uh, it's also heartbreaking to hear, and I'm, you know, it, it's really sad to think of all of these animals. And you know, we are so blessed with constant food availability that we don't even think about what it would be like to forage for your fuel all every day and then have to over utilize your your bodily resources so that you know we may not think about you know an extra turn around a a, a, um, a light source as being problematic but it might actually send the, a bird really in the wrong direction and be utilizing really absolutely vital resources so it, it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that regard um, and so you do a lot of work researching fallout and trying to give this research back to um, other organizations. Is, is that true? So actually, we as an organization collect a huge amount of data and share that data with partner, partner organizations, collaborators, etc. My research actually focuses, interestingly enough, more on um, some combination of marine mammal medicine and science, but also a lot of my work has focused on metabolism and energetics. And so oh, what wow. you were just saying about yeah. the, um, about the birds, uh, us having kind of humans having functionally, at least in, in many parts of the world, Most having places, functionally yes. unlimited yeah. food resources. Um, mm. That's actually an incredibly important part of this conversation and this story about how seemingly invisible effects of, uh, of artificial lighting may impact ecosystems through some kind of subtle energetic issues. And, and right. so, um, you know, I, there are a couple of things I can think of as examples for this. Uh, you know, monk seals and turtles come out of they come out of the water, and here in Hawaii is one of the few places in in the world where sea turtles will come out and lay on a beach and bask. So uh, <laughs> when they're not emerging from the ocean to uh, to, to nest. It's one of only a small handful of places in the world where sea turtles exhibit that behavior. Uh, monk seals also come out of the water. They come onto the beaches. They rest. All wildlife, and especially in the marine environment, everything is, every animal is kind of functioning on this tight balance. This isn't, it's not Disney out there. Life is difficult right. and every scrap of food, every morsel they work for. And yes. they may not yeah. be thinking about this in, in you know, the animals are probably not thinking about this in terms of energetic balance, but the difference between survival and death 
may be as simple as some tiny percentage of not getting enough rest or their food not being in a, in available changes in food in prey availability. Wow. Those animals, the food that I eat is now at, you know, 40, 40 feet below the surface instead of 20 feet below the surface where it's been for eons. And so, um, there's some really interesting work that has been done in, uh, in, in other species and terrestrial species. And one of the, one of the other things I'd like to point out about this is while we know a great deal, what we mm-hmm. don't know outweighs what we do know and understand about the impacts of light and even just the perception of light by animals. Um, so there's very good work going on right now. Uh, there's some folks at, at the university who at the University of Hawaii who are researching um, some of the specifics about what wavelengths of light birds can see, mm-hmm. what the impacts of that are. There's a, there's um, and and this extends through all different all different species, both terrestrial and marine. Um, you know, there are some researchers who who some uh, photographers, underwater photographers, videographers, filmmakers, who uh, have developed a new blue light system that will allow them to go down and uh, photograph. And they've discovered all kinds of things in some of the deeper layers of the ocean that have uh, kind of not been, they've, they, who, that have been minimally explored and they haven't seen a whole lot when exploring them because they're using um, they're using light, basically full spectrum light when they go down looking artificial lights when they go down looking at animals, and if you get below I don't know roughly call it two hundred meters, uh, there's very little light that that penetrates below two hundred meters, and the light that does penetrate below two hundred meters is largely in the blue spectrum. And so they developed lights around that 400 nanometer spectrum, give or take about 100 nanometers, that uh, that they took down to those deeper depths, and they discovered an entirely new world of pattern and reflection on animals uh, wow. that they had previously not had previously not been not been identified. And this is only in the last five years or so. Uh, and this is just the ability to go, oh my God, there's a phenomenon there. This doesn't explain how it works. It doesn't doesn't explain physiological the physiological changes that occur with exposure to light or shifts in the daytime and nighttime patterns and in lighting lighting patterns. This is just the ability, simply the ability to go to recognize, hey, there's something going on there that we were previously yeah. unaware of. And so there's a great deal of uncertainty. We are we are in in many ways. I believe that we as a as a scientific community have really just scratched the surface of understanding of being able to identify and then taking the next step of asking the appropriate questions to understand what those interactions between light and the organism actually are and how they affect the organism. So what you're describing really is that there's this secret world beneath the ocean surface that is deeply connected to darkness and that there is a wonderful amount of research that we could do to understand the amount of light that reaches those levels and the impact that it has because it is such an untouched ecosystem. That's amazing. Did you hear of any species that are down there specifically? No. And again, that um, I did not. There were a number of, of uh, cartilaginous fishes, rays, sharks, uh, jellyfish, things like that, that, that had uh, patterns that had never been recognized or identified before. But I can't pick out a, a specific or single one. You know, you mentioned this this huge ecosystem. I wish I could say that it was a pristine or an untouched ecosystem. In reality, it has been 
heavily impacted by human activities, by fishing, by pollution, by, um, by, well, by, by the lights on boats, the impact. Well, absolutely. They have a huge, they do have an effect. And, And we, we humans have known for hundreds or thousands of years that light impacted or had an effect on uh, ocean-dwelling creatures. People have been using light to fish for hundreds for sure, probably thousands of years. Um, light is used in a wide variety of fishing activities. Uh, if, but if you look at, you know, let's remember that the ocean water covers roughly 70%, little over 70% of the Earth's mm-hmm. surface. The lights associated with even a few thousand boats are probably, probably not enough. I can't say they're not enough. I can say, I will I... say that they are probably not enough to cause a huge, huge shift in envir- on, an, on an environmental scale, on a, on a landscape scale. However, 40% of the roughly 8 billion people on the planet live within less than 50 miles of the coastline. Yeah, exactly. The vast, the vast, more than 40% of the human development on the planet is within 50 miles of, of a coastline worldwide. Those, um, those nearshore waters, that environment, the, the coral reefs. So let's talk about the nearshore ecosystem and the coastal ecosystem for a couple minutes. And this is, this is actually where I was hoping to, to, um, okay, let's dig to, in. I, I was hoping to, to be able to include this, so I'm really glad that we that we <laughs> made it here. Um, so, if we look at these coastal ecosystems, um, there's they are largely um, kind of underpinned. The foundation of most of these coastal ecosystems is some sort of coral coral reef system in in most of the oceans of the world so if you're looking at florida around uh here here in the pacific anywhere in in really any all oceans in that in that that upper layer so there's there's three layers in the ocean three basic um layers when we're talking about light and you've got the euphotic the euphotic layer which is about the first 500 600 feet of water and sunlight can penetrate there then you've got a dysphotic layer, called, which is, is recur- the dysphotic zone is referred to as, um, interestingly enough, the twilight zone. And that, hmm. that is from about 200 <laughs> meters to five to 1,000 meters. So like, you know, five, 600 feet down to about 3,000 feet. And then anything below that is called the aphotic zone or the midnight zone. <clears throat> and I'm... I'm Mentioning that because I'm going to come back to it in a few minutes uh, when talking about my migratory patterns. So in that euphotic zone, in that first few hundred feet of water that exists around the, the all coastal in all coastal eco- ecosystems, uh, coral reefs really play kind of a foundational role in supporting the normal functioning, not only of that eco, of, of the marine ecosystem in and around the coast, but they serve critically important roles for, um, for the pelagic ocean. So the, these coral reefs are based, uh, they're highly dependent on symbiotic relationships between things mm-hmm. like, um, like algae, and and live corals and that both of these organisms are highly photosensitive and so sunlight and and moonlight like the the normal uh diurnal nocturnal deal uh dial shifts and and changes um the cycles drive all of the interactions all of the symbiosis between those yeah, there's a citation that says this, that some aquatic species are actually uh, sensitive to light levels less than starlight. So, yes. it, oh. it, it, yeah. So all, all of these coral reefs are sensitive at levels um, 
So again, this is, there's a level of uh, uncertainty here because we have not elucidated the mechanisms specifically. Mm. What we do know is that we can observe effects that we believe are triggered by light or lack of light, things like mm -hmm. coral spawning, things like whether or not the corals unfurl the tentacles that are used, the corals and anemones unfurl the tentacles that filter food or then fold them back up so that they can, and when they fold them back up, they bring uh, commensal algae in with them. And there's a symbiotic exchange of things like um, carbon. And so the, the health and functioning of these reefs is is kind of uh, partially one, one of the major mechanisms that that trigger the act actions and activities um, associated with things like photosynthesis and symbiotic relationships that happen on a cellular level in very simple, basically in in what although they are form they are animals, basically relationships between plants and animals underwater is light like they are they are one of the major drivers yeah. is exposure to different kinds of light and that normal uh dial pattern of light and dark and so um these these near shore waters also serve critically important roles for and the habitat created by these coral reefs and these, these protected areas are critically important for things like uh, the the baby fish that that then go out into the pelagic ocean. So these fish that you mm -hmm. see um, out in the pelagic ocean, they had to start somewhere. And and while yeah. some of them breed and reproduce there, a huge huge number of them, uh, the babies actually end up kind of become, going from microscopic organisms to. Uh, you know, a few inches long in these nearshore ecosystems in places like if you go into the, the Florida, in the Everglades National Park in Florida, and you go into the mangrove forests, you can see half inch long barracuda predating on eighth wow. inch long fish of other pelagic species. And it's a so, cradle for life. Absolutely. It's, it is a cradle for life in the oceans, which supports life on land in ways that we're just beginning to understand. Yeah. Back to that cascading term. Yes. So, so, so yeah. with that, sorry, please go ahead. Oh, no, go on, go on. Oh, so what I was, I was going to kind of bring this back around to talk mm -hmm. about how, um, how patterns, how, how light patterns affect behavior in animals and it is across and, and how that has has impacts across uh, ecosystem scale um, ecosystem and landscape scale uh, movement and so uh, remember earlier I, I mentioned the different layers of the of the ocean yep. every 24 hours the largest and the largest scale animal migration yes. on the planet occurs in the oceans. This is the, the and, and you may have, please feel free to stop me. You may have had the zooplankton talk about this already. No, please, yes, please. Exactly. I would love to hear your take on it. Yeah. So um, the first thing I will say in relation to this is, again, this is not my area of expertise. I am heavily focused on, individual animals of, uh, you know, birds, dolphins and whales, sea turtles, and the medical side of uh, managing their health and, and addressing uh, stranded animals and animals that are injured or, or otherwise debilitated. But the underlying health, their underlying health as a species is closely tied to this stuff. So yeah. I make some effort to understand it. Um, so there is this thing called the dial vertical migration, which happens every night. So at, at sometime around dusk, the, the animals in the dysphotic or twilight zone migrate up, sometimes thousands of feet up towards the sea surface. 
and and they may migrate up to feed to to reproduce to um to digest food that in warmer waters that they may have caught or eaten in in deeper colder waters there are all kinds of theories and again there's a huge amount of uncertainty around this we really don't understand it well we don't we don't we can't say this is the exact mechanism and that triggers this among all of these different species. What we do know is that every every morning, every night, these animals migrate vertically and come up towards the the um, the sea surface. And some at some point before dawn, they migrate back down into that dysphotic yeah. or twilight zone between yeah you know, between I, like five hundred often... and three thousand feet. Yeah, I often use the zooplankton as an example, just to show the scale of species that are impacted, that it's not just, you know, your cute sea turtles, that it's also a very tiny, often microscopic organism that's being impacted by these light levels. And and what a loss it is for the ecosystem to not have that churning of nutrients. And yeah, I, I have, the, the zooplankton example is a particularly scary one in, in my, um, in my research. And now I want to just jump back to what you do, because I, I want to give HMAR a little credit, which is that, um, you know, here we are as humans on the planet, and we are having uh, a grave impact upon all other living things. And what I see as HMAR is I feel like your work is really a nature in hospital and the hos a hospital and the the location is nature as in you are actually providing emergency support for wildlife that is in desperate need and you're saving lives and rehabilitating spe uh, animals and then releasing them and so I just want to thank you for your work because um, my heart is uh i mean i actually teared up watching some of the videos um from your organization because it's horrible to see how we have animals caught in fishing nets eating plastic um and now of course we're hitting them with another problem such as light pollution so i do have a question for you though do Absolutely. you have a favorite animal and why i do not have a favorite animal i <laughs> you know i am so fascinated my favorite mm -hmm. animal is whatever animal mm -hmm. I happen to be working on at that moment and yeah. trying to better understand whether I'm, whether I'm looking at their, at an injury or their behavior or trying to learn their anatomy and physiology because I work on such mm -hmm. a diverse range of species. Um, and so my favorite animal tends to be the thing that I'm focused on working on and learning the most about while I'm doing that at that moment. I, there is a special place in my heart for both uh, narwhal and wal walrus. Um, mm -hmm. I really, they're, they're fascinating animals, uh, and I think they're really what makes wildly them fascinating? underappreciated. Oh, well, so first off, they're cryptic. We know very little about them, but um, but what we do know about them, uh, I've had the, the the great fortune to work with a few walrus in. Uh, in facilities, in, in zoos and aquariums. And they are just the most charismatic, charming animals to work with. They, every walrus I have ever worked with had a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> and, and they're incredibly intelligent, incredibly intelligent. Mm. Uh, far more yeah. intelligent than we give them credit for, I think. Oh, um, I, and that so, happens all the yeah, time. Yeah, it's it's been for me uh, seeing how much character they have and and how interesting they are and how red how readily they engage with um, mm. these incredibly skilled uh, handlers and keepers and animal behaviorists and and the the husbandry folks who are caring caretaking for these animals do an incredible job and it is a long hard often thankless job that is really um, the primary reward for that is the, the relationship that you build with those animals. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you've done so emergency I, medicine, have you ever felt a relationship emerge with this sort of temporary 
uh, connection, maybe that the animal shows you gratitude. Has there ever been a feeling like that? No. <laughs> in, in short, no. You know, this is something that we as humans, um, people really want to, for whatever reason, people want to go, oh, you know, that animal recognized that, it was, that I was helping it. Uh, in my experience with the thousands of times I've gone out and worked on wild, on wildlife, on free-ranging wildlife, I'm not talking about um, animals in zoological collections or at aquariums where they are, um, those animals are Active. acclimated to human activities. They are, mm. they, they are able to be calm and not stressed and interact with people and develop relationships and have rewarding and fulfilling interactions with people. Free ranging wildlife is Despite what anyone wants to claim about, oh, that, you know, I, I cut that animal and it came back and thanked me. <laughs> um, those animals are, are scared. By and large, they are petrified, especially when you start yeah. talking about species that are pelagic and may have never seen a human being before. Us, mm -hmm. just our presence is petrifying for them. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I personally don't have that sense of, oh, that animal knows I'm trying to help it. My, the, the kind of the reward that I take from that is knowing that I helped it. And I did so in a way that minimized to the best of our ability, the stress and fear that that animal experienced while we were helping it. That's the real goal within the kind of within the structure that we that we operate is to minimize the stress on the animal and have as little impact on it as possible. And well, so, I work. Um, please. I was going to say, well, we're coming up on an hour and I just want to say, you know, yeah. I think there are not enough organizations that actually step into the role of wildlife protection and also emergency medicine. And so it's a very needed balance that you're at least attempting to try and counterbalance the impact that we've had. And so I just, for every life you've rescued, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I also appreciate the awareness that you are raising for not only light pollution or sleep pollution or star pollution, as I want to call it, um, but also all types of impacts that we're having. Is there any last thing you want to leave our listeners with before we go? Well, um, yeah, I would like to talk, just just take a, a brief moment to, yeah. to mention a few of the things. And I know all of these things have been mentioned on here before, but I'd like to mention a few of the things that we as individuals and as communities can do to kind of minimize the impacts that we have on wildlife. Absolutely. And so uh, in a perfect world, I would say, just shut your lights out, all of your lights out at night. Don't have street <laughs> lights running. Don't, you know, th there are a number of things that reasons that this is not a reasonable request, but to the best of your ability, shut out your lights. Um, do your best to choose lighting that will minimize, um, will minimize impacts on the general environment as well as on, on specific individual species. So especially if you live near the coastline, but really anywhere, use lighting that is shielded that, that uh, utilizes motion sensors, so it only turns on when absolutely necessary. Uh, pick colors and colors and wavelengths of light that minimize the impacts on the species that that are likely to be impacted in the area where you live, and that's going to be different for all different species. Um, and and, uh, you know, we're also, we're still finding out a lot about that. There's a lot of research going on about that at the yeah. moment. And, and so stay, stay aware, stay engaged, try and seek out when you're changing your bulbs out, when you're changing your fixtures out, seek out the newest information you can find when each time you go to do that and stay informed. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, shut off, shut off your lights use use shielded lights whenever and wherever possible minimize the footprint of that light and the amount of glare associated with it 
And uh, then especially during important seasonal shifts, during migratory seasons, during nesting seasons, during fledging season for birds and fallout season, just shut your lights off. It's a, it's a yeah. shutting your lights off every night, all the lights on your house off every night for two months is a small price to pay for continuing to have the seabirds and the sea turtles and all of the incredible wildlife that both allow our our ecosystems to continue functioning and and having providing ecosystem services that support our sorry that support our life and our survival as well yeah absolutely i i always try to put a positive spin on my advice but sometimes i'm short on patience and i was when i was actually preparing for our podcast today i was like somebody should buy the domain turn the damn lights out.com um because it's it's kind of that simple uh, it can be more complicated someone should buy that domain um because i know that someone has a, another campaign which is like the rent is too damn high um so in that same vein maybe we could use a little edge to this but um i think it's really great advice so thank you so much uh dr brodsky it was wonderful to pick your brain about wildlife and all the work that you're doing so uh thanks for coming on the show thank you so much for the invitation it was a pleasure to be here folks i know you just fell in love with starving for darkness once again every show is such a mind blower for me and i'm so grateful for our guests and for jane slade and everything all the work she's doing and all the contributions everybody's making but before we do we got to go to the magicians we got to thank them evluma.com that's e-v-l-u-m-a.com hover over products click on dark sky friendly lighting and let's do it greg what do they, what do they got down there well, with their OmniMax product, it maintains illuminance efficiently. They said that once. I'm like, that's important because, um, or ambiance, I should say, efficiently. Ambiance and lighting. Ooh. They have the Kelvin temperatures covered, and they make it efficient by being LED. So they've got everything you need without sacrificing the light you love. So Starving for Darkness, thanks, you folks. Go to starvingfordarkness.com, but also Evluma, the magicians. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Come on, click it. Hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting and get her done. Thanks for listening, folks.